Um, we come to Corinthians because of what we noted in Acts chapter 2 uh, in our discussion of the day of Pentecost. A couple of issues, which we said were not primary issues, but they were important issues in that Acts passage, uh, the issue of manifestations, the issue of women in ministry. And we said rather than try to isolate those issues and just pull a bunch of verses out of context, we find a book of Scripture that dealt with those issues, which 1 Corinthians does. And of course, there's all kinds of other incredible stuff in the Corinthian letter that speaks to us so much because we noted we are so much like them. When you read the Corinthian letters, you're reading about us. We also noted last week um, that when we talk about the Corinthian letters, there are a couple of issues to be conscious of. Uh, it, we don't have all the correspondence. There's stuff that went from the Corinthians to Paul and stuff that went from Paul to the Corinthians that we don't have. Uh, we are literally landing in the middle of a discussion or conversation that's already happening. So we have to show some care, some caution, and make sure that we're taking the things that are written in the sense in which they are intended. It's a challenge, but it's a challenge that's worthwhile because the letters are so informative to our Christian walk. So, having said all that, recognizing the challenge, let's, let's dive right in. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start with just one verse, and then we're going to work through the rest of this first chapter. Paul writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, our, our prayer this morning is that our hearts and minds would be open to what you would speak to us, Father what we need to do, Father, to become the body of believers and, and, to, and to continue, Father, in our walk as the body of believers you are calling us to be in our world, in the here and now. We ask that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I noted last week, and if you've read the Corinthian letters before, you know that there is a lot of problems in this church. This is a church with serious issues. They had issues of um, moral conduct, they had issues of doctrine, they had issues of attitude, they had issues of relationship to leadership. Uh, if you ask the average person that knows their New Testament well, what's the most messed up church in the New Testament? They're likely to say the Corinthian church. But I should note, I may have said this last week, I should note, before we throw too many rocks at these people, they're still there. This church is still there. Almost every other church you read about in the New Testament, just due to the, you know, the vicissitudes of history, is not there anymore, including some really good ones. Church in Philippi is a really good church. It's not there anymore. Right? The city's not there anymore. This church is still there. They have continued for 2,000 years. Testimony to the grace of God. It's amazing, right? But we have to recognize this is a church with a whole lot of problems. Isn't it interesting that the first issue Paul talks about is division? The first issue he addresses is the matter of factions within the church. And I would suggest, based on the reading of, of the letter, that the one, at least one of the reasons Paul goes to the issue of division in the church, factions in the church first, is because it is related directly to another issue which is the root from which all the issues come. So Paul will use the issue of division to speak to the greater problem. In fact, we're, as we walk through the second part of the chapter, it's all through the second part of the chapter. 
of the letter, yeah, of the chapter, right? Um, division, it's such a huge issue. And you know, anybody that's had that unfortunate experience of, of being in a church that's had a divisive issue, whatever it might be, maybe, maybe failure in leadership, whatever it might be, but had a really serious issue, you know the first thing that happens is you get two different factions, two different camps, you know, on one side and the other. And, and that's not the worst of it, because if those factions become solidified, they become part of the character of the church. And as, as you try to move forward, every, every issue that, move, that arises, and it may be something as trivial as, you know, what time are we going to stop serving coffee before serving? Something small, it gets seen through the matrix of those, of those divisions, and those divisions just get worse and worse. So it's really something uh, we need to speak to, uh, because the division often becomes worse than the original problem that led to it, right? So let's see how Paul addresses this matter. It really does two things. First, he begins with the exhortation to unity. We've already read that, calling the people to unity. And then he tells them how to get there. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on the how to get there. And the reason for that is, um, as you, I'm sure, know, if you've been in the church long at all, you've heard how many sermons or messages on unity? And, and they usually consist of what? The need for unity, the importance of unity, Jesus prayed for unity, an exhortation to unity, um, a browbeating because we're not unified, whatever. It's always on the motivational side. Seldom do we get the how-to side. In, in, in my 40-some years of being a believer, I've heard it once. We were asked to put on a youth camp at a resort town outside of Athens, and we decided to bring Joyce's brother and sister-in-law over to speak to the Greek youth. And Lisa, her sister-in-law, stood up and she said she was going to talk about unity, and my thought was, here we go again, and she just nailed it. One practical step after another for these young Greek adults to be able to walk in unity. I've never heard it since. We just don't hear the practical side of how we get there. And Paul does that here. So that's going to be our focus. We're going to focus on the second part, but we're going to talk about the first part too. The exhortation to unity. Paul says, now I exhort you, brethren, definitely an exhortation when he begins that way, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop and think for just a moment what that means. When Paul says, I exhort you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, what's he doing? He is saying to the Corinthians, it is as Jesus himself is speaking to you. Right? He's not just, that's just a tagline. He says, I am coming to you in the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to me as an apostle, and I am speaking to you. He cannot appeal to a higher authority. He cannot be any more emphatic than to say this, right? No authority, no cause, no, no power greater than the name of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And he asked them two things, that you all agree. Literally, you all speak the same thing. Now, he does not mean that every word coming out of their mouth has to be the same, and they can't have a difference of opinion. He's referring to what is said down in verse 12, where they all say, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of, you know, it's all these different names. And they say, that's, that's, that's the name of the group I belong to. Paul is telling them, stop announcing your divisions. Stop declaring them and letting them define you. We're all of, of one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul's referring to in that first statement. And in the second statement, he says, there be no divisions among you. 
Uh, this is the word schismata, and it comes right in English as schism, and it means a tear. It's the word Jesus uses when he talks about you know, the change from one covenant to another, and no one takes an old garment that has a tear and puts a new unshrunk patch on it because then when the patch shrinks, it tears the old garment and makes it worse. That's the word Jesus used. He used schisma for tear. And that's what a division in the body of Christ is. It's a rent in a piece of material. Now, modern fashion aside, normally when clothing is torn, we stop wearing it, right? It's no longer useful. When a piece of cloth is torn, it's no longer whole. It's lost integrity. It's no longer one whole piece of cloth. And that's what schism does to the church. It's no longer a church of, it's no longer a whole church that no longer has integrity. So Paul says, I don't want that. This is again, not a simple difference of opinion. These are issues which have effectively caused the church to lose its sense of wholeness, its sense of oneness, its sense of integrity. Paul says, I exhort you by the name of our Lord, don't let that happen. That's the exhortation side. It's emphatic, it's short, it's to the point. But what's the answer? Well, verse 10 starts, continues with the answer. That you may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. This apparently simple statement is extraordinary. This is an incredible statement. To be made complete. This is the case where the King James translation is probably the best. It says that you might be perfectly joined together. How many of you like you know, stepping into the Amish furniture store and just staring at the beautiful woodwork, right? Or any place where I love beautiful woodwork. That was a woodshop teacher. I've talked about this before. And his ability to craft things out of wood always amazed me. We still have a couple pieces of furniture that he did. And, and i just amazed to see how one piece of wood, when handled by a craftsman, blends into another, and the joinery is perfect. And one of the things about that is so amazing is the connection between beauty and function that occurs in the beautiful piece of furniture. And that's exactly what this word is talking about, right? This word that Paul uses, right? The word is... I don't know why I'm having a hard time saying this word this morning. Katarizo. Katarizo is the word that Paul uses here that means perfectly joined together. It's found without, throughout the New Testament. It's not unique. It is as many Greek words formed from two words. Kata, artizo, right? Now, I know we've talked about kata before. It's a very common word. And it literally means against, right? But unlike our English word against, it doesn't have an inherently negative connotation. You use the word against in English, what, what do you think about? I am against you, I am against this, or we're against things, right? But even in English, against can have positive connotations, right? Think about the last time you used an extension ladder. Not a step ladder, you know, the kind you put in the middle of the room to fix the ceiling thing, but the kind you lean against a wall. How useful is an extension ladder without a wall? It's useless. Right? It needs something to less rest against because whatever it's resting against is what it relies upon to stay up. It needs 
the, if you will, resistance or opposition of the wall. That's how this word works. And that was very, that was very strong in the, in the original language of Scripture. And the early church fathers were very, very conscious of this. And when the early church fathers, the early church, was attaching names to the Gospels, and of course we know the names of the Gospels are not part of the inspired text, we don't argue for that, but the way they use the words illustrates for us what the words meant. And where our modern English Bibles typically say, according to Matthew, according to Mark, the earliest Bibles, when they were organized the way our Bibles are, said, Gata Mateon. Gata Markon. Gata Lucan. Gata Ioannin. Against Matthew, against Mark, against Luke, and against John. Now, did that mean the content of the gospel records spoke against the writers? No, not at all. That's obvious. The point was that the, that the integrity and the authority of those documents rested against the integrity and the authority of the writers. If you can't trust Matthew, you can't trust Matthew's gospel. Now, that doesn't deny the inspiration or the authority of, of the Spirit of God at all because God worked through those writers. Those writers had a role to play. And that role was to add their, their integrity to the writing of the work. And so those Gospels rest against those writers, right? That's kata, against something, relying on something. The word artizo uh, is, is a verb. It means to finish or complete, to make something right. Not right in a moral sense, but in a functional sense, right? And that's, well, again, I like the picture of a piece of furniture, right? Very, very practical, right? It comes from a much older word, the word artios, right? Which is the root from which our English word art comes. So the idea of that which is visually pleasing that which is beautiful, is woven into this otherwise entirely practical word. Right? It's all about making things functional and at the same time making them beautiful. Both the verb artizo and artheos have a visual or sensory element, right? The point being that the work that is done is both functional and visually appealing. And a really good example of this uh, is in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1 when Jesus is walking along the beach and he finds the sons of Zebedee doing what? Mending their nets. This is the word that's used for mending their nets, right? They are, what is more practical than a net? A fisherman's net. What is more functional than that? It has one purpose for its existence in this world. That is to catch fish. Absolutely practical. But if you ever watch somebody that's good at mending a net, you want to tell me it's not art? Like they did just a little bit of research. It's interesting, in the last few years, uh, the Simshin Nation in Southeast Alaska put on a seminar teaching, and here was the title, The Art of Net Mending, specifically because their young fishermen have lost the art. Interestingly, a couple of years later, in Nova Scotia, the same class was taught. So I'll be all the way from one side to the other, right? Where nets are used, the art of net mending. And if you've ever looked at a properly mended net, you know that you have to look hard to find the mending. When it's done by a, a good net mender, the, the repair blends perfectly in with the existing work. So there's both functionality and beauty, right? 
So when we're facing a divisive matter in the church, understanding these things, exactly how do we respond? How do we katarizo when we have a, 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 a challenge in the church? Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge it's going to take work. Because all of this talks about work. Joining wood together in a beautiful piece of furniture, that's work, right? And we have to be mindful that this work is not going to be a standalone project. It's going to rely against something. We don't want to forget that part, that part of the word. So what do we do? Well, let's kind of go through the rest of the first chapter and kind of find out what's going on and see if that, if that will help us. Uh, in the verses that follow 10, immediately, 11 through 17, explain in depth the causes of the division. And it's all about people and names and people attaching all kinds of importance to whoever's doctrine they followed or literally whoever's style of preaching that it didn't, people did get all excited about names, and that resulted in disunity. And then in verse 18, Paul offers the truth, the essential truth, upon, the, upon which the work of restoring can rest. So he's established the problem, now he's giving them what they need to do, and he says this in verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, notice he speaks of them as one group. To those of us who are be, I don't care which one of these subgroups you're in, which one of these divisions you're in, which one of these aforementioned preachers you're following, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, that's the first step. Recognize the unity that we share through the cross. Paul's response to disunity wasn't to try to convince them of the importance of unity, to continue to exhort them towards unity, or to browbeat them about their disunity, but to point them to the one thing they all shared. The one thing they all had in common. The cross of Christ. Verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. What are the two biggest divisions in the early church? Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, right? But to them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, he just tied the two groups together, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Like I said, the, uh, the Corinthians had, had numerous problems. And if there was one problem that sat at the, at, the, at the very root of every one of their problems, it was pride. They were proud of their teachers, proud of their gifts, proud of their wealth, proud of their spirituality. And as you read through the book, you can't miss it. And nothing speaks to pride like the cross. Consider Paul's words at verses 26 and 27. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise after the flesh were called, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has called the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The cross is the great leveler of humanity. Written more than 300 years ago, the words of Isaac Watts ring so true. When I survey, the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. 
That's a three-step formula to deal with disunity. Did you see it? There's three steps in, in Isaac Watts' words. First of all, survey the cross. Take the time to look at the cross and consider it. Consider exactly who it was who died there. Contemplate how he died there. Why he died there. And then give some thought to what happened after he died there. I had a personal experience with this that was totally unintentional. I was in a, I was in a place of complete with another member of a church, a leader in our church. We were, we were going opposite directions at full speed. And it was at a time when I was swimming every morning, doing laps every morning. And um, that was my devotional time. I would pray while I swam because what else do you do while you're swimming laps? You've got to think about something. And so that was the time I would pray. was going back. And, well, what's at both ends of the pool? Crosses. Right? And as I was doing lap after lap, I, I would look at that cross. And I actually found myself praying, the guy's name, Lord, he really needs to see the cross. Get his attitude right. Do I have to tell you what the Lord said to me? Right? Wrong? No. It, I had to. Right? Not because I was wrong and he was right, but I'm not responsible for him. I'm not responsible for him. I'm responsible for my attitude. And um, that workout ended a little prematurely, but um, I had to do it. I had to survey the cross. Right? The second step is to take our greatest gain. That thing we take the greatest measure of self-satisfaction in. That thing that when people talk to you about, and they're not being bad, they're being complimentary. When people are saying good things about you, what do they say about you? Take that thing. Take um, that thing that brings praise to you and count it but loss. And that is really, really hard. But Paul did. Hear Paul's words in Philippians. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Not just as loss, but as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. So Paul took everything he had accomplished, all of his academics, all of his reputation, every, all of, of his pride and his religion. He took everything, and he had a lot. Paul had a lot going for him. He was the up-and-coming star in the Pharisaical world. He took all of it. And what did he say? I count it but rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, let's face it, none of us want to throw it all away, right? But when everything I got going for me is on one side of the scale and the resurrection of the dead's on the other, that makes the decision a little easier to make. Paul said, that I may attain the resurrection. Paul had spent some time surveying the cross, and he had counted some things as loss. And this is a deliberate act. It's difficult because our pride is so subtle, it is so clever, it's so devious, it finds so many ways to sneak back in. It may be a simple compliment from a friend. It may just be a really good day at work. And if we're not careful, it sneaks back in. 
Finally, Isaac Watts tells us to pour contempt on that evil thing we call pride. Treat it as the foul thing it is. And this is a deliberate act. It's not just an idea or a theological position or attitude. And, and the way to do it is to be sensitive to our thoughts and motives. Even the things I do ostensibly for good reasons. Is there room there for a little self-promotion? You know? even, even the things I say that are complimentary of others or other things. Is there some, act, there's some words there that maybe want to draw some praise to myself? No. Where there is pride... Pour contempt on it. Inundate it with contempt. Drown it. Don't give it air to breathe. Pour contempt on all my pride. The truly amazing thing about this is that it's beautiful. When it happens, it's beautiful. As painful as that moment was in that pool, reckoning that I was the one that needed to take myself to the cross, I was the one that needed to reckon on what Christ had done for me and come to terms with my pride. The ending of that story was amazingly beautiful as that, as that other brother and I were restored. And God did it so artfully. I will never forget it. God was able to heal that division, restore the two of us to fellowship in a crowded room full of people and none of, none of them knew what was going on. None of them even caught it. None of them even saw it. It's amazing. So beautiful. God's artwork. And, of course, there is that part of it. We play only the smallest part in this. Our part's essential. We have to do our part. But it's the smallest part. When Paul said that you may be made complete, who's doing the making? If you're into grammar, it's a passive verb. Someone else is doing the making. Yeah. The biggest part is his. He is the one that is bringing us together. He is the massive, the master craftsman. You know, there's a real popular song out now, Jesus is the Waymaker. I'm tempted to rewrite it that Jesus is the net mender because that is exactly what he is. He is the one who mends the net that we have allowed to be torn apart, right? We must be made complete. We're not the ones making things whole, complete, or appropriate. Jesus is the net mender. We're just the hands. Our part is essential, but his is the greater part. You know, we all know the words of Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. But do we see the beauty in that? It is a beautiful thing. It is a visibly beautiful thing. There's an art in it. So when that, something happens and you feel that sense of separateness rising up, turn and face the cross. I mean, the visual is so simple. You got two believers and they're like this, right? They're at one another. And they're at one another to the point that they go like this. And there's a division. The answer is simple. They both turn and face the cross. Now they're in the same place, facing the same direction. And the division's been healed. When we feel that sense of separateness rising, turn and face the cross. Survey the cross. See ourselves rightly. See those around us rightly. That means seeing ourselves wholly as objects of His grace and mercy. It means seeing others as equal, equally recipients of His grace and mercy. 
and allowing ourselves and others to walk and grow and develop in His grace and mercy. And as the parts are knit together, both functionally, that we might function as a body of believers, and relationally, and the beauty of that takes place, the hands of the craftsman will be so easy to see. Not only by us, but by a world that's watching us. Father, thank you for your word as Paul just begins to dive into this. Father, I can only imagine what Paul was thinking when he sat down and thought to himself, how in the world am I going to write to these people? They have got so many problems, except to know that Paul was cognizant of his own issues. And writing out of that own experience, the weakness and the pride of his own experience, he was able to speak to their issues. And Father, I just I pray, Lord, our prayer this morning is really simple, that we be faithful to do our part of the job, because we know beyond a doubt you will do yours. Uh, help us, we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.